0: To the lord, and ask him to help us now as we look at his word. <clears throat> lord, you tell us in your word that you're good and that you're wise. And you also tell us that we are inclined to go astray and often foolish. And so we pray that you would uh, come to us by your spirit and through your word and teach us to walk faithfully before you shape our wills so that we want to do what you want us to do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Back around 1900, he made a fortune. Andrew Carnegie knew how to manufacture steel. He was not only an astute businessman, Carnegie also had sensitivity to his workers and a commitment to those that served him. He once said, take my people and leave my factories. Soon
1: the grass
0: will grow up through the floors. But leave my people and take my factories and those people will soon build new and better ones. His key to success seems to be his own dedication to his people and their dedication to the task before them. Kind of makes you think about the Christian life. Luke has shown us his home video, if you will, of Stephen's death. He was faithful and courageous. Who would have questioned his dedication to the Lord? And then last week, we began to look at the life of Philip. He and Stephen stand as something of studies in contrast. Stephen, the Lord t- chose to take him very quickly out of this world. In Philip's case, the Lord left him for many years to serve. Our need is to be dedicated followers of Jesus like both Stephen Stephen. And Philip, and so that raises this question that's before us this morning. How does the Lord keep us in step with him? We're looking at the verses we just read. If you can open your Bible, Acts chapter 8. We're going to begin with verse 9 and work our way down through the end of the chapter. Uh, Acts chapter 8, beginning with verse 9.
1: Now what's the outline
0: in the book of Acts? Well, you know it. It's right there in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus said, and Luke is using Jesus' words as his guide, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. Last week, Azalon helped us begin to see how the Lord was moving his people through persecution. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we read that all the disciples scatter in the face of that suffering, except the apostles. So how does the Lord keep us in step with him? That's the question. I think that's the big question that Luke is addressing in these verses we just read. So look with me, first of all, at verses 9 and following. I've lived in New England, mid Atlantic, uh, the upper Midwest, the Southwest, and often I feel as if I'm an outsider. Philip was an outsider too. He wasn't from Jerusalem. Like Stephen, he was a Greek speaking Jew. The persecution forced him out, and now he is not in Jerusalem but north, about 35 miles in an area called Samaria. And we know from Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well that Samaritans and Jews didn't get along with each other.
1: Despite all
0: that, though, he's faithful to the Lord in the use of his gifts. We're told in verse 5 he proclaims the gospel and then in verse 7 he has this wonderful sign ministry where he casts out evil spirits and he heals those that are lame and paralyzed. And then we get to verses 9 and following, enter Simon the sorcerer. Luke devotes a significant amount of space to him showing us that this Simon guy is one bad dude. Uh, he had practiced magic to the amazement of the people in his town. He told them that he was a big deal. He'd impressed them so much that they thought that he was the power of the God that is called great. Great. That's the way they cast him. And besides that, everybody paid attention to him. We see that in verses, that, those descriptors in verses 9 through 11. So you might think about what's going on here as a power encounter. Uh, we have Satan and Christ, Philip and Simon. The chapter begins with a focus on personal, uh, on physical persecution, but now we see that the battleground is much more pervasive. It's a spiritual conflict as well as physical. Jack and Corky uh, started attending our church and were relatively quickly assimilated into the body, And afterwards, Corky began to tell us more about her story, how in the past she'd been a witch, and how the Lord had delivered her from that. I once uh, knew a minister who dabbled in the occult and proudly told me how he communicated with the dead. He said, I want to teach my church about how powerful this can be, and then went on to relate this experience, he said that uh, he was in what he called a prayer meeting, and there was a table there, he put his hands on the table and commanded it to leave the room, which it did, and then when it came to the doorway, it cocked on its side, went out, and up the stairs. Maybe you know people who are Satanists. Maybe you've been tempted to look in that direction for more power in your life. As we'll see in a moment, it's something from which you want to run as fast as you possibly can. And so what does this much of the narrative have to say to us? Followers of Jesus are all strangers and pilgrims in this world. This is not our home. We live in a fallen world. Jesus has delivered us from the realm of Satan, and he has translated us into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's our real home, relationship with Jesus. And so up to this point, what can we say about how the Lord keeps his people in step with him. Well, first of all, it's apparent that he takes us us to places that we would not normally go on our own. (coughs) Simon, he's up in Samaria among people that are different from him culturally, ethnically. (coughs) Next thing we see this far into the passage is he enables his people to share their faith in Jesus. He helps them to use their spiritual gifts. And the next thing that we see is that he exposes his people to their true enemy, i.e. Simon the Sorcerer here. And so by inference we're reminded that this is not our home. We look for something better, and all of this comes to us as it must have come to, to Philip in an unexpected way. Might there be other ways in which the Lord keeps us in step with him? Well, please look at the next section, which is verses 14 to 25 question here is who gets to take care of baby Christians? That's the question. And uh, Luke's answer is pretty obvious. And let me just say parenthetically, aren't you glad that the Lord has provided elders for us? They're here to pray for us, to encourage us. They're here to minister God's word to us. They bless us as they model for us what the Christian life looks like. Well, it's the apostles, you will see, who take the initiative to care for new believers. Samaria was about 35 miles north of Jerusalem. News traveled that there are people following Jesus up there. And if that's true, so what? And uh, what might it mean for the rest of the body of Christ? And so the apostles send Peter and John to check out this report. What's going on below the surface? Some sense among the church leaders that the work of Christ is supra-cultural. Believers don't have to be ethnically Jewish to have a place in God's church. In addition, there's a sense that the apostles, the apostolic leaders, are the ones who are responsible for these followers of Jesus and they bend to make sacrifices for them. And the sacrifice in this case in part means traveling 35 miles from Jerusalem up to Judea, uh, up to Samaria to encounter people Peter and John apparently had never met before. Well, Peter and John do find Samaritans, and they are believers. But they've only been baptized in the name of Jesus. And so they lay their hands on them, they pray for them, and as Jesus had promised, they receive the Holy Spirit. Now, how are we supposed to understand this? There are some who would suggest that this is a pattern... A model, uh, uh, of second blessing that all believers need to experience. You come to faith first, and then after that there's another blessing, and you receive the Holy Spirit. Perhaps there's another uh, perspective that might be a little more helpful. Read Acts and see what Luke is doing in terms of outline form. The gospel is spreading from Jerusalem, to Judea, Samaria, and then by the end of the book, to the ends of the earth. And then see the Spirit working as part of a once-for-all transition that arrived with Christ's death and resurrection. Uh, View what happened here with these Samaritan believers receiving the Holy Spirit, view that as part of the apostolic spread of the gospel from Israel to the nations that leads to a new people of God that are comprised of both Jew and Gentile. And here's another way to think about what happens here. With Peter's and John's coming from the mother church, there's now a sense that these new converts up in Samaria that are of different ethnic and background, they are now really accepted brothers and sisters in the Lord. However you happen to take those verses. So, however you take them. Let's be clear about this. Having believed on Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. He is present with you. Jesus has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And so you can trust him to guide you into truth. And you can trust him to care for you from this very moment until you see Jesus face to face. But now, here comes, on the scene, self-important, Simon the sorcerer. Once again, he's there in verses 18 and following. Now, he's really impressed with Philip's ministry. He wants to get in on the action. And he says, if you give me this Holy Spirit power, I'll give you some money. What do you think about that? Is God's grace like a business venture? No. We already know that God's grace doesn't come to us as something we can earn or something that we deserve. Christians who use spiritual truths to make money Hardly. And so, for Simon's benefit and for the benefit of these baby Christians, Peter, representing the apostles, says, Your money perish with you. Buying God's gift, repent of it with this mindset you have no part in the gospel then we come to verse 25 the apostles return now 35 miles i suspect back down from samaria to jerusalem and on the way what do they do they preach in still other samaritan villages now what do we find in this next section about how the lord keeps his people in step with him well He raises up leaders who are responsible for new believers. And he motivates them to make sacrifices so baby Christians can grow up in Christ. And he leads them to rebuke wrongdoers and call them to repentance. And he instills in them a love for the gospel so that even as they've done their job and now they're coming back home, they keep on sharing their faith with those the Lord brings into their lives. As one commentator has observed, a lay evangelist with a Greek background begins this evangelistic outreach. And then Hebrew-speaking Jews continue it. Philip breaks the ice Peter and John, get in on the fishing. It's unexpected, isn't it? The Lord keeps us in step with him. First, as he shows us our true home. It's not here, it's heaven. It's not here, it's in relationship with him. He shows us our true home. And the second thing that the Lord does is he pastors us in our need. What's next? Well, verses 26 to forty. We're told that there are what? Three plus billion people living on planet Earth today who are outside the bounds of the gospel. Does the Lord care? Do we fit into his plan for those people? Well, verse 26 tells us, an angel of the Lord said, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And Luke adds, this is a desert place. Now, Philip has been in the middle of a remarkable, successful cross-cultural ministry among Samaritans. He's 35 miles north of Jerusalem. And now the angel of the Lord says, go another 60 plus miles down to Gaza. What's this directive? Why is the Lord intruding into Philip's plans? Well, there's a high-ranking Ethiopian official that's on his way from Jerusalem back home. And he's in a chariot, and he's, as he's riding, he's reading out loud, as people used to do back then, from the prophet Isaiah. And the Holy Spirit says to Philip, okay, get down there now, and initiate a conversation. And so Philip catches up to the chariot, and he says, do you understand what you're reading? What an entry point. That was a great way to start a conversation, don't you think? In God's providence, he's reading about Jesus' suffering and death as it's predicted in the prophet Isaiah. And so Philip explains the gospel to him. He believes. Though it's a desert place, Luke has just told us, the eunuch says, oh, here's some water. Can I be baptized? And he is. And then the Spirit of God whisks Philip out of his presence, he doesn't see him anymore, Philip goes on to Azotus, and then up to Caesarea, another, oh, I don't know, uh, let's see, Azotus, Caesarea, probably another 60 plus miles. And as he goes, he takes opportunity all the way along to share the gospel. What a story, who would have imagined it? I wonder if we were to go around the room and I were to say to you, the day that the Lord saved you, did you expect when you crawled out of bed in the morning that you were going to be saved? And my guess is you'll say, no way. The Lord has this funny way of operating that doesn't fit our plans, right? So how does the Lord move in our lives so that we keep in step with Him? Well, I think we can say, He does it unexpectedly as he interrupts the schedules that his people carefully put in place. He unexpectedly sends his people to places they would never ever imagine going. He unexpectedly leads them to people they would never have imagined ever meeting. And he unexpectedly Directs them to tell how wonderful Jesus is, and then shuttles them on to other places where they can do it all over again. Isn't that the way the Lord keeps us in step with His agenda? It's disrupting, to be sure. It is disrupting, and it's incredibly exciting. How does the Lord keep us in step with him? He shows us we've been designed for a heavenly home. He pastors us in our need so we can grow up in Christ. And he stretches our vision all through the power of the Holy Spirit. Can I give you a contemporary example? I love to hear people's stories. So recently, Debbie and I are talking with Jerry and Janine about their path. And I want to say, I tell this story with their permission. Uh, So guess what? Jerry's in the military, they think to themselves, all right, let's view the military as our mission field. And so I said to them, could you please just tell me, make a list of where the Lord took you? And this is part of the list. Uh, Shaw Air Force Base, South Carolina, July 1995 to 99. McGuire Air Force Base, New Jersey, 99 to 2002. Seymour, Johnson Air Force Base, 2002 to 2005 Maxwell Air Force Base, July 05 to May 6. Randolph Air Force Base, July 6 to July 10. Peterson Air Force Base in Colorado, July 10 to July of 2010 to July of 2012. and then Reynolds, Pennsylvania retired from action. And I said, well, what was that like for you? They said we were jumping around all the time and we didn't really like it some of the times. And Janine says, I had to get used to it. Get used to being disrupted from your schedule. Get used to the Lord doing the unexpected in your life because he's on the move by his spirit. Once uh, Billy Graham and screenwriter, actor, Uh, Woody Allen were being interviewed together. And partway through that exchange, the interviewer turns to Woody Allen and says, Woody, would you have made a good evangelist? Billy Graham immediately spoke up and he said, yes. He said, I can answer that. He would have been a wonderful evangelist. He's creative. He's insightful into into the human condition. He works with words so effectively. He would have made a wonderful evangelist. And we think to ourselves, what a word of grace from Billy Graham about Woody Allen. Instead of letting him kind of dismiss spiritual concerns, Billy praises skills that Woody had that could be used in the service of Christ. Now, we don't know why Dr. Graham responded as he did, but we do know a lot about his life, and I suspect that if we had been there and said after the interview, uh, tell us, Dr. Graham, why did you answer the way you did? I think he would have said something like this. I didn't know what was going to come in this interview, but I knew it was a big opportunity. Uh, I knew millions of people would be watching, people who would never come to a crusade, people who would never watch one on TV, and so I just prayed beforehand, Lord, please put your words in my mouth so I can do good for your kingdom. I didn't know what to say, but that's the answer that came to my mouth. Think with me, will you, about possible, unexpected, and disruptive opportunities you might have to speak for Christ in the coming week. And then think about our collective contacts here. We have the potential to make a huge impact for the Lord, don't we? And so, here's a way you might begin. Why not begin this week praying something like this? Dear Lord, thank you for your Holy Spirit who's guiding me. Help me to pay attention to your leading. Enable me to respond to the disruptive and the unexpected places and circumstances and people to which you may lead me. Help me to make your name great wherever you send me, anywhere in this whole wide world. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for this wonderful passage that shows us how you keep us in step with you. Would you enable us today to view the disruptions and the unexpected as part of divine appointments to make your name great in all the earth. We pray these things with thanksgiving. In Jesus' name, amen.